lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. Today we've got a really interesting show. My guest today is Scott Davis. He's the author of Surf to Seesaw, Unconventional Essays on Balance, Beauty, and Meaning in Life. Scott was profiled by Forbes at age 30 as a rising star in corporate America, but chose to ignore the industry expectations, walked away from the executive suite to pursue a life off the beaten path. First, as a tech founder, then as an expat, adventure sailor, inventor, and author. Scott has lived among many cultures He's worked in many industries. He's worn a wide variety of hats, including MBA, diesel mechanic, software designer, industrial engineer, boat builder, and author. His writing borrows from all of these adventures and perspectives to highlight key principles for creating a life of significance. Scott, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks, Lee. I'm glad to be here. And, uh, you know, I nominate you to do all my introductions from now on. That was awesome. What? Thank you so much. So <laughs> tell me a little bit, you know, you're the, you've been in a number of different roles and, right. and I happen to know that you got, had an undergrad from Baylor, you got an MBA from Boundary Belt. Where does the, the diesel, diesel mechanic and the industrial engineer and the boat builder, where does all that come in? <laughs> well, you know, uh, at about the midpoint of my life, I realized that even though I'd been really fortunate and had run into some very powerful people early in my career and they just plucked me up and, you know, made things amazing for me. Um, I could see where that was going and it was really going to be just more, more and more and more and more and more. And at some point you realize that more might not be the answer to the meaning of life. Um, so I decided I was going to sell everything and buy an old sailboat and, uh, sail off to live in the islands. Um, problem was I didn't know how to sail (laughs) and I didn't know, and I didn't know how to take care of a sailboat, um, which particularly revolves around diesel engines. So I had to go to diesel school and, and that's how I got the, the diesel mechanic side of me. So basically necessity is the mother of invention with me. It was just one of the things I needed to learn in order to live the life I wanted to live. Absolutely. And, and you have another good learning and that is sometimes less is more. (laughs) Yeah, um, it's true. And most of the time, uh, a lot less is really different is what it is. You know, I have this really great friend uh, who had a he owned a factory uh, in Tahiti, uh, the big island of Tahiti. And he decided he was going to move from Tahiti to a very remote island, um, an island with only 3000 people on it. And he took his family and he moved there. And he said, you know, the first few years were really hard. And I, I asked, well, why were they so hard? He said, well, I kept trying to smuggle in pieces of my old life into my new place. And that old life was fundamentally compa- incompatible with the new place. And I had to learn that if I wanted to be in the new place, I had to actually be in the new place and not try to keep one leg in the old place. So I think that simplification is kind of a lot like that too. I think uh, sometimes when we do it in a sort of half-assed manner, we we really only want to get rid of one or two things. We don't actually go through a step function where we have to let go of the dock and fully be on the boat. So uh, when you do, it's quite different. 
It is. And so you, you did that and then you moved on and played the role of inventor and then finally the author. And that's really what I want to focus on today right. because, I mean, when I read the title of your book, Surf the Seesaw, you know, I'm like, yeah, because we've all wanted to do that at some point in our life, but we haven't necessarily had the courage to do it. Right. Yeah, I think that it does take a lot of courage, especially in the polarized world that we're in right now, where it seems like everything uh, everything is dealt with as a tribal symbol, as opposed to dealing with it for what it actually is. And so, you know, one of the main themes of the book, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of things that we have learned incorrectly through society. And so the book is fundamentally about unlearning a lot of those things so that we can see more clearly what is meaningful in life. But in unlearning a lot of these things, what we find is that uh, balance is really this active concept. It's in the middle. It's this pulsating dynamo of uh, you know, a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of selflessness, because we can't even define something like self as entirely bad. Like if you take someone who literally never thinks of themselves, they're going to wither away to nothing and be of no use to anyone in the community. And so you need someone who's engaged in self-care, who's dedicating some time to exercise and to eating right and to having quiet time. Um, those things are super important for the community. And if that's true about something like selfishness, which seems so clear, um, well, then it's also true about many, many things, that the magic really is in the middle and that as human beings, our lives should be characterized by this oscillating balance, standing in the middle of the seesaw and just keeping both seats in the air. And that's where the theme of the book came from. So I understand there's also a really good story in the book. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about that? Uh, well, you know, I think that every chapter in the book has um, has some great stories. My my personal favorite story in the book is um, it's a story of my youngest son, Parker. Uh, he came to live with us for a year in the Caribbean because he had to uh, he was undergoing some mental health um, treatment. And the prescription, in addition to a whole lot of drugs, was to be removed from overstimulus. Uh, and so he came to the Caribbean and lived with us for a year. And what I told him was, we're not just going to sit around and play video games all year. That is not going to happen. So why don't we build a boat? So we decided to build a boat from scratch. And uh, that experience was an unbelievable lesson in life. Um, it was incredibly hard, really difficult, and we made a lot of mistakes. And one particular example that I relate in Surf the Seesaw is uh, we'd spent an entire day, super hot day, planking, which is, means applying these boards to the side of the uh, boat as part of the hull that will keep the water out. And the next day I came in and, uh, you know, we're there and I'm looking at it and the light was different and I could see that I had made a really, really bad decision the previous day. We'd done that entire day's work in a way that was just not going to work out. Um, it was going to create a lot of problems later. And so, you know, we did the normal thing, which was trying to excuse the error, trying to pretend that it wasn't there, trying to tell ourselves about how we could fix it later with this or that. But finally, I just admitted I made a mistake. And I picked up a hammer and I destroyed all of the work that we had done. I just, I literally bashed holes in the side of the boat. And Parker's eyes were just enormous. Like, I cannot believe you're destroying all that work. 
But you know, when we went back and we did it, we did it right. And the boat is strong. It's he still has it after all these years. Um, and more importantly, now Parker's in his, uh, he's 30 now, and he's got a career as a creative director at a video game company. And he's, he calls me and says, you know, it's really useful for me to be known as the guy who always tells the truth, even when I'm wrong. And I have to tell you that every time I make a mistake, I want to admit it as fast as possible because I remember the boat. <laughs> wow. So the moral of that story, I think, uh, for me is just that, uh, uh, Denial are denial is just terrible. I think that the three most important words in the English language are I was wrong. Well, I think they're a lot more important than I was right. I certainly <laughs> agree with you on that. Yeah, I think that this, uh, you know, making mistakes is uh, if it is not the central common experience of, you know, human existence, I'm not quite sure what is. And so. I think that denial is an incredibly powerful anchor that can keep your life in a very bad harbor. And you've got to admit when you've made a mistake to get that anchor up and move on to a better place. And so I really love the words I was wrong uh, because I think they allow us to shift our focus 100% right now immediately to the future. What am I going to do now? Not what did I do before or not do before. What am I going to do now? Well, and I couldn't agree more because I, at the Brain Performance Center, I work with, we work with a lot of people with anxiety, depression, ADHD, and basically they're stuck, you know, and part of that's they don't have enough neuroplasticity in their brain to create change. But the other part of that is that they are in denial, either that or it wasn't my fault, you know, it wasn't my fault, I had nothing to do with it, and until you reach that level of acceptance you can't move forward. So I, I see the beauty in being able to endorse and accept where you are and start thinking about how you're going to get to the next place you're going to go. Because you know, and I think you write about it in the book, life is predictably unpredictable. 100%. You know, another one of the, this is, I, I think what, the book, another theme that you'll find in a lot of the chapters of the book are misconceptions that imprison us. And so, you know, we've dealt with one of the misperceptions being that balance is about picking an extreme or a tribe. And of course it's not. And we've talked about that. We've talked about um, another thing that can lock us up is constantly litigating the past and trying to pretend that we didn't make mistakes. That can clearly lock us up. Um, there are other things that can uh, prevent us from getting to uh, be able to make change. Uh, one of them, oddly enough, is uh, planning and intentions. So I think that a lot of people think that, hey, they, they saw us, for instance, uh, sailing around the Caribbean, and they're like, oh, that looks great. I would love to do that someday. I've always wanted to do that. And our answer was, you know, pretty much the same every time. You can do that. But you have to act boldly to set aside your former life to come down here. You can't sort of bolt this on to the side of the life that you have. And I think a lot of people get trapped in this planning of, hey, when I'm 65 or when I'm 70, I'm going to do this and such. And they build these incredibly elaborate plans. And on some level, to me, those plans, they feel like the end and not the means. 
Like they're so happy and so satisfied in their plans as if their plans were the same as living those things that they never venture out. They never do take the risk. They never take the great leap that's required to have an extraordinary life. So, yeah, I think over and over again, we've got examples of these ideas in our head that uh, that we've acquired in Western Civ as we've grown up here that are just locking us into the status quo that are preventing us from from living bravely. Um, another one of those is certainty, as you brought up. You know, I think that we're taught to be certain about everything, to be certain about our tribe, to be certain about our politics, to be certain about that this person who's across the table from me is the singular love of my life and will be mine forever and ever and ever. Amen. And the reality of life as we experience it is that very, very little is sure. Change, I'm talking about significant change, happens more often than we want to imagine. Like if you think back for the last 25 years, here's an example, uh, a list, a very small list of the things that did not exist 25 years ago. Google, as in the whole thing, did not exist 25 years ago. You got to admit, that was a pretty big, unpredictable change. Third world mobile, the internet crash, Uber, Enron, September 11th, Sarbanes-Oxley, Subprime, Tesla, Citizens United, Twitter, Dobbs, the other Twitter. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Basically, massive things are happening every year, more often than every year. So this idea that we can forecast the future and that we're not going to be surprised, I think is it's terribly wrongheaded. And it sets us up to be very disappointed when our forecasts or our predictions don't turn out and we suddenly start to think that we're failures. Well, we're not failures. We simply had the wrong expectation about what life was going to be like. You know, and setting expectations is one of the things that I see can be such a challenge. Setting realistic expectations is where I see people really struggle because we, and I think it's, I think it's great to dream and I think it's great to push yourself. I do it. I do it every day on a conscious level. But I think when I do that, I also set ex realistic expectations because I need goals. I need steps to work towards. And when I when I look back at COVID-19, what that was a crisis that every business industry, every business segment, we're, we were hit with it. And the learn the opportunity for learning has been tremendous. Oh, well, I agree 100 um, percent. I think. These opportunities, when we think about change, uh, one of the great ways I would suggest looking at it is just to back up and think about it uh, from a sort of ecological and biological perspective. And from a biological perspective, um, the following statement is a fact. Stasis is death. If there's no dynamism in the ecosystem, the, organism, the organisms in that ecosystem will wither. They will not evolve. They will not adapt. So stasis is death. And so from a lot of perspectives, when we see these, you know, big changes happening, these big surprises, for some reason, we're engineered through society to react to them as if they're bad. They're not bad. 
these are the waves of change that cascade through life and those waves carry energy and the energy drives us to adapt and adaptation drives us to grow. So without these changes, life would, it would literally wither to nothing. So we have to have a different perspective, not only that change is going to happen, but also that change is the energy through which we grow. I agree with that. And but what I encourage people do to deal with change, most people don't like change. Most people would rather stay stuck than to have to change. And so a lot of times I'll suggest they use, you know, meditation and, and different different techniques to help them calm themselves and to be able to accept it. Are you a practitioner of meditation? I am. I am a practitioner of meditation. It's extremely important uh, in my life and has been for many, many years. Um, the specific approach to meditation that I take is a little bit different than um than a lot of folks. Uh, I would say that there are two basic camps. One basic camp is, I'll call it quieting the mind. And the other camp is more of an active, um, I'll call it a priming approach. Um, mine is solidly in the priming approach. Uh, and that is to say, um, simply trying to take things that I value, uh, act, actions and responses and perspectives on life and other people. And these, these are things that are important to me already. And I'm reiterating them to my brain in the morning every day as a means of priming me so that I'm a little bit more likely to engage those neural pathways when I do face the stimulus of the day. And so, yeah, I've been doing the same. I wrote my own meditation because it was essential that I, you know, reiterate my own values. And I have gone through that meditation every day for the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. It's been incredibly powerful. So are you focusing on your core values in that meditation? Yeah, yeah. The way that I wrote it basically was I, I spent a good bit of time doing an inventory of my life to look at the circumstances that led me to the greatest sense of uh, happiness, peacefulness, sense of accomplishment, sense of identity and fulfillment. And then another list that was what sorts of circumstances led me to feeling like I'd failed, like I was not being helpful, like I was not proud of who I was. And I was able to identify some things that were different between those two lists and to really focus on the kinds of things that are going to uh, work for this machine that I am, for this mind that I am. And, you know, examples of that to be very specific, um, I have a tendency to act like a teacher sometimes as opposed to a guide. And sometimes if I'm not careful about that, it can come off as being, you know, a little preachy to my friends and I don't want to be like that. And so there's a section of my meditation, for instance, that says literally, uh, I am at best a guide. I am not a teacher. And it's just a way to remind myself of that early in the day. And there are many, many, many uh, elements like that in the meditation to just consistently remind me that this is the way that I want to look at these ambiguous stimuli that I'm going to face today. I don't know what they're going to be, but I'd like to prime those neural pathways so that my better angels are readily available. Well, and I appreciate you recognizing those neural pathways because our brains can become hardwired. And if we don't make an effort, if we don't have intention or purpose with our thoughts, 
we are not going to we're not going to hardwire the right things in. Yeah, I mean, priming works. It's been proven in thousands of lab experiments um, over the last decade. It absolutely works. So then the question really becomes, for me anyway, well, what am I going to prime? Am I going to just take the meditation that's written by some person that I don't know and that doesn't know me? And I find that very difficult. I think that's one of the reasons that for me, a lot of meditation comes off as, you know, hocus pocus is it's trying to program my brain according to a value system that's not already there. You know, one of the stories that I tell people is that, you know, our brain operates on a tenacious memory triage system, wherein things that we think that we're going to use again very shortly are kept in a highly accessible store of our brain and things that we are probably not going to need nearly as frequently, they're moved to a little bit less accessible store. And then things that we're probably not going to need to reference for a long time, they're put in a deep memory store. And we can almost think about this as, you know, the convenience store or the grocery store or the regional distribution warehouse. And what I'm trying to do with priming is to take some values and ideas and memories and experiences that I've had that probably have would migrate down to the regional warehouse on their own. And I'm trying to get those things relocated to the convenience store. And that's really what my meditation is. It's just reiterating these experiences that have been transformative, these people that have been really encouraging, these moments when I've been my best version of myself and just remembering, well, what was really at play there? How was I thinking about the world? How was I thinking about myself and other people? And just moving those ideas into the convenience store where they'll be highly accessible. Well, I like the way you look at that because we've got to be able to readily access what we need. And I think that most people take a more passive approach to that. I think that you make the case that we should be judged not only by our actions, but you should be judged by your actions, not your intent. And yeah. tell me more about what you mean about that. Well, uh, I think that there's a, uh, I wasn't the first one to come up with this idea long, long ago. There was a cliche created that said good intentions, the road to hell is paved with them. So I, I think in our family, uh, one of the things that led me, you know, to see this was that in our family, we have this very strong culture of providing very good gifts very thoughtful gifts when it's a birthday or a Christmas or whatever. Um, and we explicitly tell each other that the gift giving opportunity is a moment for us to express that we know the other person, that we know the recipient and that we know something very specific about them and that we value that thing. But what I've seen is that that makes us very sensitive to bad gifts. And so there's times when, you know, you'll get a bad gift and, uh, you know, when uh, you, you get a gift from somebody that doesn't feel right, they it's not that they intended to hurt you. I mean, their intention was to give you a gift, but it didn't have the right effect. It had the effect of making you feel minimized. It had the effect of making you feel invisible. And so I think that's just a really good example that we've all lived through where, you know, intentions do not actually matter. What matters are our actions, what we do in the world. That's what matters. And so we can't just sit around and say, well, I always intended to be a good person. No. Did you hold the door open for someone? Did you abide by the rules? Did you help out when you could help out? 
these are the only questions. And ultimately, we won't be able to, at the end of your life, we won't be able to look in and see, well, what were your intentions? All we'll be able to look at is the external manifestation of how did you act in the world? And so I think that it's really important that we don't let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, but I had good intentions, because I think that just becomes an opiate that actually reduces our will for good action. I agree with that. You know, growing up, my mom always said, actions speak louder than words. Yeah, well, your mom was right. Yeah, she was right about a lot of things. <laughs> Isn't it funny how our parents get so much smarter as we age? It's amazing, you know, <laughs> but I'm just appreciative that I can recognize that. Oh, and true. A better late than never would be my response to mom on that. So when you look at the book, when you look at Surf the Seesaw, if you had three takeaways for people, what would those three takeaways be? Wow. Uh, well, I would say uh, the first uh, relates to diversity. Um, so I'll just register that one right off. Um, the second one, I think uh, that I would, that we haven't talked about yet anyway, I would say is uh, that I'll call it tiny tyrants. Tyrants exist um, and that Tyranny is just absolutely awful, but we allow it to creep in, in lots of places. And the final one is that uh, you can only understand the meaning of life in the context of the chaos of life. So, you know, if I could just kind of take them one at a time, I'll say that, yeah, diversity, I think a lot of times we look at diversity as like a social tax or a penalty. Um, and that's a, that's obviously coming from a very privileged perspective, but mostly what I think about as, you know, uh, you know, I'm a strategist by heart and I would say diversity is, it is our species superpower. If you think about how many different things that dolphins like to eat, it's a fairly narrow list. Um, how many different ways of playing do dolphins have? It's a pretty narrow list. Compare that to human beings. Like, oh my goodness, look at the difference in diversity of interests and aptitudes and preferences and behaviors and habits among human beings and compare it to any other animal on the planet. And it's many, many orders of magnitude greater. It, it's, it's the distinctive thing about human beings is that we are not all alike. And it is the source of so much power, like whatever the problem is that you're looking at, in my experience, having lived with lots of different cultures where people solve the same kind of problem very differently, my experience is that there are dozens and dozens of solutions to that problem that you can't even imagine unless you're talking to some people who, who have read different books, who have listened to different stories, who have lived different experiences. You'll never know unless you have you know, consulted people like that, unless you've involved them in the process. So I really see diversity as our species superpower, not as some, you know, tax or, you know, some social obligation. I think that's great. We've got, we've got about three minutes left. And for people mm -hmm. out there that want to learn more about mm -hmm. you, I assume that your book is on Amazon. It's yes. where you can buy any, any, any bookstore. <laughs> yeah. But for people that, you know, want to learn more about you, how do they find out about you? 
Well, there's a website called Surf the Seesaw. Um, so surf-the-seesaw.com. And you can find out about, uh, read excerpts of the book. You can find out about me and my background. You can contact me. Um, I'm also also on Instagram, Facebook, you know, all the social media stuff. You can contact me through there. Um, so, yeah. And so obviously you can get it on Amazon and paperback and ebook as well. So if people just have a question, you know, that, that, that they want to ask you, if they shoot you an email, yeah. will you answer it or is it absolutely. best? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you, you can contact me through, uh, at Scott at surf the seesaw. So you can send me an email there. You can also contact me on social media. Um, I'm, I, I will respond personally to that stuff. I don't have that farmed out to someone else. So yeah, the discussion is really part of why I do what I do. Well, and thank you for that honest answer, because I think it's important for people to know, hey, you know, if you sit down and you organize your thoughts and you spend some time presenting your question, it's really nice to know that it's going to be personally answered. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it is. Well, absolutely. It's going to be personally answered from my perspective. I really think that the, uh, you know, one of the things that I drive home at the end is that uh, every single person as surf the seesaw makes the case in the final chapter every single person can live a meaningful life every single one it has nothing to do with fame nothing to do with money nothing to do with power what it has to do with is being available for and being engaged with other people so i want to live that out so contact me and i'll be happy to do that wow i can't think of a better ending for people to have those thoughts to leave people with with those thoughts is such a that's a if you don't, you can't beat that. And I think that everybody wants that, Scott. I truly do. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the conversation and enjoyed having you join me. Oh, it was just such a pleasure and a lot of fun. So anytime, Lee. Thank you so much. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. 